the book of Romans, the word of God from chapter 8, verse 28. The VBS Bible School workers will meet tonight at 5 here in the church in room 202. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, enable us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to receive the light we need shed upon this passage through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The children here may wonder what that word pilgrimage means in the sermon title, Your Pilgrimage and God's Purpose. We're talking here about the story of your journey with God your life of faith. Not a trip to a sacred site, but your own walk with God. That's your pilgrimage, and everyone's is a little different. And so each person needs to keep track of his own journey. Last week we saw how God marvelously adjusts and harmonizes the different parts of our lives and the events around us so that all things are working together for good for those of us who love God and who are His. What we did not see was that this harmonizing and adjusting reaches beyond the limit of our visions into eternity, both before and after us, so that eternity also yields an understanding of God using all that happens for the good of His children. What we're called upon to do in this section of Romans chapter 8 is to bring together our pilgrimage and this purpose of God in such a way that we cease thinking of our own spiritual journey as starting and ending with ourselves as something that is peculiarly and unusually our concern and begin to think of this pilgrimage within the framework of the purpose of God as it stretches from eternity to eternity. Now this is very sacred ground that we are on and we must approach it with much reverence and with godly fear. Not argumentatively or philosophically as such but in worship we ask the question how does my particular pilgrimage fit in to God's particular purpose? I suppose there is little of the gospel that Satan attacks more fiercely than he does this particular point. He does not want you to see this relation. And he will do everything this morning to keep you blurred as to how your walk with Christ 
fits into God's larger purpose. Don't let him. Think of the purpose of God for a moment. The world has no idea what God is about. It cannot discover it. It makes speculations, but it doesn't have an idea. The Bible unfolds the purpose of God many places. To sum up what God is doing, you could say from the words of Colossians that in all things Christ might be preeminent. There's the purpose of God. Or as it's written in Ephesians, that all things might be to the praise of his glory. This is where God is heading, what he is doing. Christ is the central point in the history of the universe and of God's plan. And all the things that God does move toward the honor and glory of Christ displayed before the angels and before men. That's his grand purpose, that every knee might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You ask, what is God's purpose? That's it. Now every purpose has subsidiary purposes under it. And under this grand purpose of God is the secondary or contributing purpose which is described here in this passage. And it is that those who love him be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, the more people are like Jesus Christ in character, the more his glory and power will be enhanced. It's a marvelous thing to have a grand character, but it's much more marvelous to reproduce that character in many others. That enhances the glory. And so if a whole company of men and women reflect a likeness to Christ, that enhances the glory and honor to Christ. And therefore, this is the subsidiary purpose. The main purpose is the glory of God in the glory of Jesus Christ. And the underlying secondary purpose is that there be many who are like him who are his sons. Now, you can have likeness in uh, <clears throat> different ways. There can be an accidental likeness. You may walk along and find a stone, pick it up and say, my, it's just like a fist. That's an accident that that stone resembles a fist. Or you can take a penny and say that. That's like Abraham Lincoln. That's a derived likeness. That likeness arises out of the subject. And the likeness that the saints have to Christ is not accidental, but derived. It comes from him. It is because they are joined to him and have one nature with him. That inside the essence of the believer is more and more like the essence of Christ. And so the outward expression begins to resemble him. Conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And this process goes on throughout our life in which more and more sin and error are chiseled away from us, and finally it reaches its consummation and fulfillment when we are made completely like him because we see him as he is. Oh, what a grand purpose, and what a 
joyous underlying purpose or subsidiary purpose. That's what is meant here. Those who are called according to his purpose. Never think of the purpose of God as a set of eyeglass lenses. I'm always interested when I go to the eye doctor to watch him substitute a whole series of different lenses to see if he could find the one that'll just fit me. It's trial and error, and I always think, you know, I could do that. I'm sure I couldn't, but it looks like I could. Don't put God in that role. God doesn't try out different plans on the world, and when this one fails, he institutes that one. And since man didn't respond to this one, maybe he will to that one. That is to demean God. When God has a purpose for the world, which is the glory of his Son and the exaltation of Christ, that purpose holds. It will not fail. It cannot fail. You and I may set out in purpose to do a particular thing, but somewhere along the line we're thwarted in it and kept from it. But God is not like us to fail or be thwarted. All things are in his hands. And when he says he calls us according to his purpose, we know that that purpose shall be realized. And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. There is no question about that whatsoever. Now realizing that purpose, we begin to say, well, how does this fit in with my salvation and where I am? Well, just hold that for a moment and realize that whenever anyone sets out to do a project, there are stages in the completion. A man who's building a garage draws a plan and digs the footings erects the walls and puts the roof on, pours the floor. He has in his mind certain stages through which that will go. And God doesn't achieve his purpose with a snap of the fingers. He could, but he doesn't. He has these milestones. And if you see these five milestones in the carrying out of the purpose of God, you can begin to trace your spiritual journey and see from whence you came and where you are going. And you'll have a grander grasp on your own walk with God. There they are. They're right there in verse 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew, that's the first milestone, the most important of all of the five is this one. Those whom he foreknew Another way to translate it might be those whom he foreloved. A more literal way might be to say those in whom he took a divine and active delight. That is, not simply that he knew what they would do and knowing that they, he proceeded to cause them to do it. Not that, as if it depended on theirs, but that God knew them in the sense of ordaining and choosing and loving them 
before the foundation of the world. Now we know this from many passages in scripture where this same word is used. For example, when God speaks through the prophet Amos in chapter 3, he says, of all the nations of the world, Israel, I have known you. Now God knew what all the nations were going to do, of course. But he said, of all of them, Israel, I have known you, meaning that I have taken a special delight in you and ordained you to be peculiarly my own, those whom he foreknew before the foundation of the world, not by any merit of Israel or any size or anything lovable, but God mysteriously, wisely, without any favoritism, without any partiality, without restricting the, their human freedom. God foreknew them. That is, he loved them ahead of time and made them his own. How beautiful. We see it come to flower when Jesus said to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you. I chose you. That's the first milestone. Now take that second. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, the image of his son. This word predestined has two words in it that you'd find interesting, pro and horizo in the Greek. Pro, of course, meaning beforehand, and horizo meaning horizon. A horizon sets the limits or boundaries of what you can see. You can't see beyond it. And when God predestines, he sets the limits or the horizon to which this life will attain. He sets the target for which this life is destined. And what is the target? To be like Christ. And so the predestination of those whom he foreknew is that they would enjoy a conformity to the Son of God. Don't ever say that God's predestining work is bondage. It is the greatest kind of liberation. Because if you came into the church this morning thinking that somehow in the stars or in the numbers your fate was sealed and that you could not go any farther than a certain limit, that it was fatalistically said that you were bound to a certain job or talent or activity, how liberating to realize that your predestination means the sky's the limit. You can go as far as you want in likeness to Christ because that's the very destiny for which you have been foreknown of God. I know of no greater liberation than telling a man the stars have no control, the numbers in the universe have no bearing and no reality, and the eternal God's will for him is that he be like Jesus Christ. Now take that third and most glorious and central of all of these great milestones. Those whom he predestined, he called. Now this is a particular moment in history 
when the wise and loving God actually carries out in a human heart that which he purposed to do before the foundation of the world and that which he predestined to do, now he does it. It's a little like an architect who has laid out the plan for a field to become a shopping center. Now this certain yard of earth over here, he has it planned that that's going to be scooped up. And it's all on the drawing, but the, the land is just there. Then comes the day when a man in a bulldozer comes along and actually scoops it up. And what was planned and what was destined happened to that particular earth. The scooping up is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in which he comes and calls a soul. And laying his own mighty hand upon him, draws him. But my illustration is, is bad in at least this point. It sounds as if the earth had nothing to do with the bulldozer. And of course, the human soul is never saved against his will. No one is browbeaten into the kingdom of heaven. What happens is, in this calling, is a beautiful thing. The Spirit of God gives the soul such a view of Christ within that instead of spurning him any longer, he runs to him and embraces him. That's calling. The Spirit of God enables the one who before had detested the kingdom and not wanted Christ at all, now he causes that soul to love him and want him fiercely. That's calling. And it never fails. The Spirit of God comes and calls. The human heart, faced with such a view of heaven and of our glorious Redeemer, cannot do otherwise than say, Yes, Lord. I come. The fourth milestone is given. Those whom he called, he also justified. This one who is called by the Spirit is in a wretched condition. He is sinful and vile before a holy God, yet he wants Christ. And what does God do? But take the sins which now have become very evident and very divisive between him and God and put those sins to the account of Christ on the cross. So they are carried there. And then to cover this repenting sinner, he throws around him the robe of Christ's righteousness. And looking upon that robe, he sees that that man is just in the sight of God, not that the man in himself is just, but seeing Christ's righteousness, he receives him and accepts him and declares him to be just with God. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. An astounding word. It means that all of the results of sin and evil which come from my character and which have lingered in me even since my calling, that all of the weakness and death itself, all of these are completely and finally removed from my life and I stand in the presence of God cleansed and upright and full of joy made in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Oh, 
the great anchor point of the Christian pilgrimage. That's the moment toward which we are moving, that we shall be glorified. This comes about when the believer dies or when Christ returns. It is at the moment when we see him, we are changed into his likeness, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Sometimes Christians are led astray by theologians who claim that eventually everyone's going to be glorified. That if we wait long enough, hell will be emptied. And at last, all creatures will see the face of God. But there is no such promise in the word of God. Do you see how the golden chain begins and links eternity? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. One cannot receive the glory without the calling, or the predestining, or the foreknowing, or the justifying. Be very careful of a creeping universalism which is everywhere in the Christian world and which is utterly anti-biblical. We see it, for example, in Revelation where we read that the devil and the beast and those who belong to them and followed them are cast into the lake of fire. If you lose your sense of the everlasting destruction and perdition of the wicked, the nerve of gospel outreach will be cut in your heart and you will have betrayed the great truth of the scripture. Those whom he justified, he glorified. For if ever anyone entered heaven without the justifying work of God, the angels would have to blind their eyes. They could not look on that unforgiven sin. The Son of God would have to hide his head. He who is spotless and without wrinkle, who is utterly separate from sinners, how could he suddenly welcome them into his bosom? And the holy and righteous Father, who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, how could he welcome into the Father's house, unwashed, unrepentant, unjustified, men and women. These then are the great milestones of God's purpose. And God wants you to see your pilgrimage as part of this grand chain of his. He therefore wants you to walk it with great confidence. One of the precious truths of our faith is called the preservation of the saint, which means that God, having foreknown you and predestined you and called you and justified you, will certainly complete the process. That's why this last word is spoken in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. They haven't been glorified yet, many. We haven't been glorified yet. 
but it is spoken of as if we have. So certain and sure is the reaching of the destination that the Apostle Paul can speak of it as an accomplished fact. They were glorified. In God's mind, you have already been glorified and you will surely reach that destination. You will be preserved. Ah, that's a wondrous truth. Don't anyone say, well, if I believed that truth, I think I'd go out and start sinning. How can you? who believe that God will keep you in the honor of his religion and of his son all the days of your life, turn around and give yourself to its dishonor. No, quite the contrary. Those who hold this truth most dearly, seek holiness most fervently. Did not our Savior say, no one will pluck you out of my hand, no one. That plan of God, which has been hammered out on the anvil of his grace, cannot be thwarted by human will. His purpose shall be accomplished. And this is why men and women of God from earliest days have faced courage with danger and have faced with perplexity with great confidence and with great joy because they knew those whom he justified, he also glorified. So walk your pilgrimage, friend, with the confidence that you will be preserved to the end. And walk it with love. If you begin to meditate on this golden chain, love for God will be kindled in your heart. Do you realize, just ponder for a moment, how God, before you were ever born, before your parents were born, how he loved you. He foreloved you. Does that not cause love for him to glow in your heart? And for his people? Because he foreloved them too. Who are you not to love them and embrace them? And are you not desirous then of the greatest kind of holiness? If in fact your destiny, having been set from eternity, is to be in the likeness of Christ, shall you not then be even now hurrying toward that similarity? Shall you not even now do all that you can to whittle away evil and take away unchristlikeness and get rid of the ugliness of sin? and begin to build your character in the outline and shape of his glorious love. You see, we don't know that we are gods by some mysterious intuition, as if we would say, well, I have a feeling inside of me that I have been chosen. That's not how you know you're chosen. The way you know you're chosen is to see holiness and faith and love begin to be evidenced. And you say, well, look, I am one of those whom God has foreknown. Otherwise, this evil heart of mine would not love God and my neighbor as I do. Don't fool yourself into saying, because I say I'm one of the elect, I am, if there's no evidences to that effect. Oh, what humility you will walk with, friend. When once you see 
that because of utterly no action of yours or no merit in yourself or no religious bent or anything, God, before you even existed, took an active and divine delight in you on his own initiative, you will walk humbly with your God all your days. And your sufferings, when you see that glory that's going to be, the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with that. You'll be able to endure and bear the deepest kind of disappointment and pain in the light of what shall be. There is someone here who is being put off by this message. The chain is too high for you to grasp. You haven't believed in Christ. But I say to you, take the chain at its nearest point. Grasp hold in faith. Because all who believe in Christ will be saved. Take Christ. And no one who believes in him will be condemned, not one. And all are freely invited to come to Christ. You are invited to come to Christ. No window has been shut upon you. Take hold of the chain. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Clutch him to yourself. And let his purpose be realized in you. Don't anyone think I bring to you some strange new doctrine. This has been here all the time. It is the theology of Jesus. It is the belief of the Apostle Paul. It was Augustine and Calvin and Whitfield and Spurgeon whose great gospel embodied these same truths I'm telling to you. What my prayer and belief and hope is this that you will cease thinking of your Christian life in terms of your own problems and temptations and perplexities, starting and ending with yourself and your situation. That's Lilliputian theology. I call on you to see your pilgrimage as stretching from eternity to eternity in one grand line of God's purpose. And with head erect and standing tall and full of grace and courage, you march on. That's how to be more than a conqueror. Because God loved you. Let's pray together. O oh, blessed and gracious Lord, faced with the wonder of your purpose, and all that you have done. We marvel. And we rejoice. We take hold. Of the chain. Where it is near us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. We take hold the chain. And we will live our pilgrimage Lord. Not in small personal terms but in the large and grand scheme of your purpose, so may it be for us. In Christ's name.